Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Welcome to Football is Family, a podcast dedicated to the fan and fan experience. My name is Jeremy McFarland, and I want to look at the positive behind what makes football so enjoyable to watch and follow. I want to know why you are a fan of your team, of a player, or an era of football. Whether the pros, college, or high school, I want to hear and share your stories and your love for the game. If you want to be part of this podcast, please message me on Twitter at Jeremy underscore McFarlane, or on Facebook at the Footballist Family Facebook page. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. We'd like to welcome everybody back to Footballist Family Podcast. We've got a returning guest. Would you like to reintroduce yourself to everybody? Hey, everybody. My name is Rich Schmelter, and I'm an author and podcaster and uh, one of Jeremy's best friends, right? That's, you're, you're not kidding. And, and here's, the, here's the thing that really makes this podcast work is that he's a Raiders fan, and we still get along. I was sweating it out when, you, when we were both 3-0, and but I see a little bit of separation there, so... Well, the, the big Maybe thing Maybe I should have said that later. <laughs> <laughs> he, he messaged me... Uh, actually, let, let me read something to you. I got a book we're going to talk about, and he says uh, that he loved being on my show, and go Broncos, please never tell my Raider Nation that. I just did. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> I forgot I just, what I wrote in there. <laughs> it hurts. It hurts. Oh, it let, hurts. Me, let me tell you, let me tell you I this. Been, I should have been kind to you all the way through this. <laughs> let, 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 let me tell you this, that, that even though – I'm a Titans fan through and through. My blood still kind of runs blue and orange, and it hurts to see them suffer and, and, and go down like that. But I do, I do like watching uh, teams like the Raiders do well, uh, mainly because I like seeing the history uh, teams that have been historically good do, do well. well. I just want to just say one thing. When you talk about the Raiders, you have to say first place Las Vegas Raiders. Because I'm going to enjoy that as long as I can. <laughs> well, hey, uh, Titans helped you all out last Sunday. And by the oh, way, they did. By the way, I'm I'm getting to the point with this that I'm tired of people saying that the other team lost and the Titans didn't win. The Titans beat the Bills. The Titans beat the Chiefs. That's it. Right. But we're not here just to talk about football, but I do want to talk about your podcast. Um, I have a book here that you wrote, uh, The Chicago Assassin. The Life and the Legend of Machine Gun Jack McGirt and the Chicago Beer Wars of the Roaring Twenties. Fascinating book. Fascinating book. And, and typically when people talk about Chicago in the 20s, they they really kind of focus on Alphon, Alphonse Capone. But Jack McGirt has a lot to do with Al Capone and his and his rise. Can you explain your book to, to people and uh, tell us where we can get it? 
Oh, you can get it. You can go to any bookstore if there's even any uh, brick and mortar bookstores anymore. You can go to go to go to one of those. It might even be in the bookstore, or they can order it. Or the quickest way would just be to go on, to Amazon and just punch in Chicago Assassin, and it'll come up. And you know, you can get them new. You can get them used. Um, I don't believe that they're in paperback or an ebook. They're just in a hard copy. I will if if I could figure out how to do it. We had some issues a little bit ago with with technology. If I could figure out how to put a link on the show description, I will do that. Oh, thank you so much. No problem, buddy. I was I became fascinated with him years ago. I got a book for Christmas called The Encyclopedia of American Crime. And going back to the 80s, when I was just a very small child, that's what I'm going with on that. <laughs> I was just a small <laughs> child. But um, barely read at that time. Now, uh, I received a book for Christmas and I was leafing through it. And I started to see, you know, these by different biographies and all. And then I stumbled across uh, Machine Gun Jack McGurn. And he was on this, if you look at the book, uh, one of the pictures, he's standing there with his wife. And it's, it's in the picture section. Yeah. And the way that he's just standing there and she's next to him wearing a, you know, fox stole. And he just has that, that, that look of him, like alpha male look to him and everything. I was sucked into that whole picture with, you know, the showgirl on his arm and, uh, and you know, him just standing there in this three-piece suit and all. And I started to read his story, you know, the classic good boy gone bad type, type story. And I was fascinated by it. But, you know, in time, you know, you, you get married, you, you know, you wind up with family and everything like this, and um, you just live your life. And then eventually I started to uh, write. And uh, luckily, the Cleveland Browns moved out of Cleveland, which gave me a great opportunity to write a book on the Browns. But I also told my wife, I said, I go, I really would like to get a book on Machine Gun Jack McGurn. And slowly I chipped away at the legend and try to find as much fact as I possibly could. I connected A and C, wound up with all the B that I possibly could. And it was like a treasure trove opened up for me. I got a chance to interview people that knew his widow and just everything clicked in, you know, the court records and everything just flowed in. And I wound up with more information than I ever dreamt I could uh, from some incredible people, incredible sources. And I, I was always fascinated with the story. And then I was able to, to, to write it. I was intimidated at first because writing about sports and all, I thought, you know, even though I knew, I thought I knew a lot about this gentleman, I didn't know that much because you had to, again, separate fact from fiction, fiction, like you see in the old West days, Jeremy, you know, when you hear stories of Jesse James, Billy, the kid, so much is lost. So much of the, the, the reality is lost in fantasy. And these people become Paul Bunyan-esque almost. And this is, you know, the case with, with, with a lot of these guys from the 1920s. So I, I, after stripping all that away, I came up with a book and I had a great opportunity. Actually, I wound up with a publisher, Cumberland House, down in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, just great people. John Mitchell was an incredible editor that I had at that company. And uh, he just, he really made that book, you know, blossom. He had so much knowledge on it anyway, because they were really coming out strong as true crime writers or true crime publishers. And it was just a great opportunity. The reason why I selected Jack McGurn was I always liked stories within stories. And, you know, a lot has been written about Al Capone, but nothing was nothing was written about this incredible human being that, you know what I mean? Just the life that he led and what he did for a living out of circumstances beyond his control when he was younger. 
I'll tell you what, though, if you're looking, if you're standing next to a lady like this, you probably would be grinning ear to ear, too. Oh, she she was a pistol. I had a chance to talk with a lady um, that she lives in Los Angeles now. And uh, this Louise Rolfe is his wife. She was married 10 times. And of course, she said Jack McGurn was the love of his uh, love of her life. His real name was Vincent Vincenzo Gabardi. Yeah, I was going to ask you how to pronounce that. <laughs> yeah, Vincenzo Gabardi. And it started off Gabaldi, Gabardi. And um, they, he changed his name because he wanted to try to get into boxing. And at that time, the boxing world was closed off to, to Italians. And it was really just, you know, Jewish and Irish boxers. So he chose the name Jack McGurn, battling Jack McGurn. And the machine gun came later, which is funny because he he always preferred a pistol, pistol or a knife, you know, when out on his assignments for Al Capone. And there's really no record that he ever used a machine gun, but it sounded really good. It's better than, you know, pistol Jack McGurn, you know, or, you know, oh, yeah. but I'm sorry, go oh, ahead. Yeah. No, no. Um, you were talking about pistols. Uh, his first three kills, if I read it correctly, were pistols. Yes. Now. He had a, um, and I guess if, if anybody grew up during the time of Home Alone, we remember the Wet Bandits. He had a way of showing his kills as well. Uh, can you tell us what that was? Machine Gun Jack McGurn? Yes, yes. When he, when he killed the first three people, he left something for them. Oh, a nickel, meaning that their lives were worth just a, nothing but a nickel. That was an old expression that, you know, this isn't, you know, the guy's life isn't worth a nickel. So he would leave a nickel. He would leave a buffalo head nickel there. You were talking that he came from a bad uh, situation. He had a a pretty decent childhood, for what I understand. But both of his um, both of his his biological father and his stepfather uh, were taken. And somebody's trying to call me right now. No, <laughs> um, were taken taken away from him way too soon. Can you tell us what happened with them? Well, when I first did this, this project, it was, I, all the facts were pointing to that his biological father was gunned down by a case of mistaken identity. Right. And then later I found out from other scholarships that his biological father passed away. He came down with a, a some type of an illness back then that's probably obliterated from the earth now went to bed after a hard day's work and just passed away. So after and this, this, this information came to light for me about 10 years after I wrote the book, I wrote the book in 2008, it was published in 2008. And I learned that information probably, well, actually probably about 20 or 2015, actually. And uh, from, from another source, and so, you know, I, it's like, you don't know which to believe. I, I, I would probably venture to say it, it, it's probably the second source that maybe the father did pass away from, from everything pointing to it, that the father did actually pass away um, in his sleep. And, um, but his mother did remarry. She married a man named uh, Angelo DeMora and he was the grocer. And then they moved to Chicago and now his father was gunned down at that time the grocers were selling sugar to the, the bootleggers and the Jenna family owned pretty much covered that home market. And they were ruthless. They were ruthless in that area where Jack McGurn grew up with his stepfather who he loved dearly. He loved dearly. And cause he wasn't that old when his biological father passed away. I believe he was about 
eight or nine, depending on what what birth date. The, a lot of a lot of places have that Jack McGurn was born in 1901, 1903, 1902. I went with the 1903, and because uh, everything pointed to to that from his birth certificate and all. But I um, I, I got off point over here. So yeah. Angelo Demora, he he was selling the, the sugar to the Jenna's, but not exclusively. He was selling it to other people. And the man was a grocer and he was trying to provide for his family. And what happened was the Jenna's didn't like it and they gunned him down in front of his store. Well, Jack McGurn, who was coming up in the ranks as a really good welterweight boxer, all of a sudden, you know, decided, hey, you know, it's up to him as the oldest son to step up and take care of this situation. And he had no problem gunning the men down that that you know killed killed his stepfather. Al Capone, who was at war with the Jenna's, all of a sudden decided, hey, you know, maybe this kid's not too bad. And Al Capone just doted on Jack McGurn. Because Jack McGurn was an incredible athlete, no matter what he did, whether it was boxing, golf, bowling, every anything that he touched, he could ride horseback like an Apache. I mean, he just did it. Everything he touched sports-wise was great. And he worked out the, his whole life up until the end. So Al Capone really gravitated toward that. And Jack McGurn had a passion for taking care of the people that took care of his family as far as it took care of his stepfather. So one thing led to another and he became Al Capone's top trigger man. What I saw from, from your book, and I did a little bit of research on, in addition to that, he was pretty much, he knew what he was going to do and he, he did it. He didn't let too many things get in his way. But there's one story that I want you to 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 go into depth a little bit more about Joe E. Lewis. Okay, uh, there is a place called the Green Mill. It's it's actually still in existence. It's an incredible jazz place. My wife and I were there uh, about ten years ago, and unfortunately, when we got there, it was poetry night, so they had no no jazz going. But I wanted to just kind of take in the ambiance of it all, so we had a drink there. But the Green Mill was a was a jazz jazz club that Jack McGurn owned a portion of. Joey Lewis was one of the top entertainers. He was a comedian and a singer, more more like a novelty song singer and, and just a comedian. And he was one of the top notch people of its time of of the time. Well, all of a sudden, he wanted to leave the Green Mill, and you know that was a heck of a profit for Jack McGurn to lose. So he said, "I'm going over to these other clubs," and he was like you know, no, you're not. And, you know, one thing led to another. And Jack McGurn, allegedly, and I always like to use the words allegedly, and my, my old editor, John Mitchell, told me, you know, in these situations with the with the gangsters, and I'll use the word presumably and allegedly, you know, that way you kind of cover yourself. So allegedly, Jack McGurn warned him not to, you know, not to perform and everything. Joey Lewis, who's a very arrogant man in his own right, said, you know, he was going to walk away and, you know, forget you, you know, I'm, I'm, I have my life to live. Well, they sent a few guys again, here we go with the allegedly, uh, Jack McGurn sent a few gentlemen to pay Joey Lewis a visit at the hotel that he was staying at. And, uh, they sliced him up pretty good. And his, his vocal cords were cut. His face was slashed basic almost on the one side of his face was all the way down his face almost like oh, the scar looked, that al capone had it looked awful oh yeah he, he oh so you cite you've seen the pictures of what yes happened yes sir i mean it's basically what you can find on wikipedia yeah yeah <laughs> he 
he, yeah, he got sliced to ribbons and uh, he crawled out of his room, crawled down the hallway. And uh, Al Capone was mad at this whole situation because he didn't know. He said, why didn't you come to me? So Al Capone straightened it out and he wasn't going to, you know, really slap Jack McGurn on the knuckle. Maybe he slapped him on the knuckles like somebody would at a parochial school, but uh, he was, that was still his boy. You know, that was still his guy. So he got probably stern reprimand at all, but and Joey Lewis recovered and he wound up, uh, they actually made a movie of his life called Pal Joey with Frank Sinatra back in 1957. Of course they omitted the whole Jack McGurn thing. They, 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 they went around it and all, but they didn't refer to Jack McGurn as Jack McGurn. Probably a good thing. Right, right. Probably a good thing. Uh, you talk about allegedly. You don't want anybody to come after you and say you're, you're getting a little too close. Uh, but one thing I love about this, uh, this book, and, and um, among it, there's several things. And one thing I want to point out before I go to my, my main point is I like how you approached it. You approached it in a very simple, straightforward way. Because, and, and here's why I like it. Um, there's a lot of moving parts in this book. A lot of moving parts. You're talking about the different families, the north side, south side, Chicago. For somebody like me, um, I like it simple and straightforward. And you did a masterful job doing that. That's that's something I do appreciate about your writing. Um, but the one thing that I remember growing up, everybody knew about the, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Jack McGurn played, allegedly played a part in it. There we go. Can you explain it? Well, Jack McGurn was shot up uh, in March of 1928. He was shot up in a smoke shop of the McCormick Hotel by the Gusenberg brothers, who were Frank and Peter were Gusenberg were just ruthless. Man, they used to just go into a bar. They used to enjoy just going to a bar and just beating somebody up just for the heck of it. You know, they they would get drunk and just beat up on people. They absolutely loved brutality. So, of course, Jack McGurn was infiltrating the North Side gambling dens. And he was starting to, you know, move Capone's organization in into the Northside territory. Very taboo at that time. And the Gusenberg brothers shot him up really bad in a telephone booth. You know, the classic telephone booth shooting that you see in so many of the old black and white gangster movies. Of course, McGurn survived. But Al Capone did not want to get involved. He, he knew that something had to be done with McGurn. But there was so much carnage and everything going on in the city of Chicago. And just real quick on this on this note, Jeremy, the carnage and everything was almost looked at like a sporting event. You know, people in the papers, they they they, they people love to read the papers. And these guys were looked at elegant as elegant rogues, you know, to, to coin a phrase from the book, The Great Gatsby. They were looked at as elegant rogues. And, you know, they were they were almost hero like. You know, you know, I mean, uh, it was like a sporting event. If you look at any pictures of any of these gangsters, you know, shot up on the streets, there's tons of people around and little kids and people usually, you know, dab, dab um, uh, handkerchiefs into the blood and everything like this as souvenirs. I mean, it was it was, it was a sporting event. Very much so, like they did in Louisiana with Bonnie and Clyde. Very similar to that. Yes. Yes. They try to cut off their, uh, Clyde's trigger finger. Yes. And yeah. <laughs> but, Trophies were a lot different back then. Oh gosh! But what? And, and and again, when I when I'm uh, when you're looking at this, you take that story, and I'll let you get back to it in just a second. You take that story, and you lay it out so beautifully, and you make it as if you are a you're watching it from afar. I love how you use imagery. Um, 
one of the things that I love about this book, especially is that uh, I didn't quite realize how bad of a shot many of these people were. There's a lot of bullets being fired in this book. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> they were city boys. You know, they, they were city boys. And uh, again, I don't want to, str- I'm going to get back to the same Valentine's Day massacre, yeah. I promise. But they were, they were all city boys and they, they couldn't shoot, they couldn't shoot, shoot straight at all. And so that's why when um, in 1924, uh, I'm sorry, 1923, Dean O'Banion, the leader of the Northsiders before he was gunned down and then Jaime Weiss took over and then Bugs Moran took over after him. But he was out in um, Colorado and he was, uh, there was a man named Louis, Louis Altieri and he had a farm out there and he was, he liked to be like a, 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 not so much a farm, but a ranch. And they used to have problems with coyotes and the Thompson submachine gun became very, very popular with ranchers because they could kill the coyotes and everything. It was quick bursts and all. Well, Dino Banyan saw this and said, hey, you know what? We can get this machine gun, bring it to Chicago and just create devastating effects. So the machine gun battle started, you know, in Chicago with that because that weapon was all you had to do is point and pull. And it was a spray spray weapon. They started it. Uh, the, the main reason for that for that gun was in world war one. It was designed to be called a trench broom because of world war one, such, you know, you take a trench, they take a trench. It was just constant back and forth. That was designed to be a trench broom and it would just fire incredible bursts. It was, it was basically judge and executioner of the prohibition era. And um, so, you know, that became very popular. And like you said, they couldn't shoot very well at all. Except, of course, in the garage, they took good care of that. To keep, to now, care we're of transitioning that. back to, to the same Valentine's Day Massacre. They, the, the, whole, the whole thing was, uh, you, you heard all this stuff, especially if you watch. Now, I love the director, Roger Corman. He did a lot of these B-movies, these drive-in movies, which I'm a fanatic on. He did a movie called The Same Valentine's Day Massacre. Incredible movie, but watch it for the entertainment. Don't watch it for the facts. You know, they had it where Jack McGurn set this up with this with this uh, with the Detroit Purple Gang was to uh, lure Bugs Moran in with uh, this alcohol called Old, Old Log Cabin. And, you know, that that it was going that they were going to be able to get it real cheap and everything like this. And Jack McGurn was the mastermind and Al Capone knew about it. Now, Al Capone and Jack McGurn, I'm sure, knew about it, but they knew that, you know, the heat was on them. The, the heat was on them. And if anything would have happened to the Northsiders, that naturally all the attention was going to go on to them. So they, they, they knew that they had to annihilate him somehow. He just turned it over and said, turned it over to this, uh, to this, to the St. Louis gang and uh, this uh, Fred killer Burke and this Claude Maddox. And they, he just said, you know, just, you know, take care of it. And they, they were called his American boys. You know, these guys were all from uh, some of them were from St. Louis. And to be honest with you, they, they claim that Jack McGurn fired one of the shots in there. There was no way that when these guys came in dressed as fake police officers, because they came in, they got into the they got into the uh, uh, the S&M Cartage Company on Clark Street, which was one of the headquarters of Bugs Moran. All that this was, all that this was supposed to be was they were going to try to have a meeting to try to get rid of. Al Capone. Now they knew that so many of these places were bugged and Al Capone had spies everywhere. So they said, you know what, let's meet. It had nothing to do with alcohol. It had nothing to do with that. They were all set to go and meet 
in the in the garage because they knew that there was no way that that place could be bugged, spied on, or anything like that. Uh, of course, it happened that you know people did find out about it, but of course, Bugs Moran did not know. And that way, if you look at that picture with these guys gunned down on the ground, there was no way that the hierarchy think think about this with a company. If you have grunts that that are working for you. Would you be dressed in, in such incredible you know, three-piece suits and overcoats and everything loaded with, with wads of cash and all, and you're going to actually be unloading this and getting yourself dirty? So, you know what I mean? It, when you see the pictures of these guys, it, it, there was one man, John May. He was a mechanic. He just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. He was fixing fixing a crankshaft on one of the trucks, and he was laying underneath the truck. And, well, he just happened to be again at the wrong place at the wrong time. I mean, he wasn't a saint or anything like that. He was a petty criminal himself, but he was just fixing the truck at that time. And uh, Reinhard Schwimmer, he was a kind of a mama's boy. Uh, he was a gangster groupie. He was the only guy on the picture that wound up still having his hat on when they gunned him down. He should be, I think, if you're looking at the picture, he should be the one on the far right. Yeah. How he still had his hat on, I have no idea. Oh, gosh. But what, what I like about this is the blonde alibi. Uh, McGurn, it said when McGurn was arrested as a suspect for the St. Louis Day Massacre, or St. Louis, St. Valentine's Day Massacre, the authorities were forced to release him after Louise Ralph declared that he could have been part of the killing because the two were making sweet Valentine's Day love at the Stevens Hotel. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she was. Yeah, she, she was. Um, she was a pistol. I mean, again, I talked to this one lady that uh, Nancy Miller that, that that took care of Louise in her later years. And um, she she just told me incredible stories. But yeah. Oh, yeah. Louise was a pistol. I mean, you know, sex was like a, you know, like breathing air for her. I mean, she, she was she 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 was all any man could ever want. Valentine Day love. Yeah. That sounds like a fragrance. Right, and, you know, if you think about this, though, Jeremy. You know, you, you think about this nowadays with all the technology and all that you could be holed up in a room. Of course, if you're holed up with a person like Louise Rolfe and you're making sweet Valentine's Day love for two weeks, you know, odds are you really don't care about anything else. However, you know, in between breaks, sessions, you know, eating a lot of oysters, by to me, you know, <laughs> to get to regain yourself, um, you know, you had to do something. So, I mean, all that you basically did was just listen to the radio read the newspapers and um, you could probably have to go stir crazy there, you know, being held, hold, held up in there for so long. Again, you're with, you're with an incredible blonde, but you know, you can't be doing that all the time. No. Uh, it sounded like Al Capone was getting a little stir crazy uh, during some of the hard times. He was, even though he was in an amazing hotel room, I, what I understand about the writing is that he had, steel or iron on the wall the windows oh yeah he had bars up on the windows you know that you could close cl close them like shutters steel shutters to close the windows um he had a car specially made um he it, he was the reason he took such good care of his guys he made sure that his men he had a gymnasium set up again al capone was a huge fan, fan of sports even though you know he was stocky and everything himself and didn't look like he really worked out he you know he enjoyed his cocaine he enjoyed a lot of a lot of the, the fruits of his labor, but he insisted that his men work out, his men stay clean shaven, that they were they they always tipped their hats to ladies, opened doors for ladies, gave up your your seats on a subway or uh, sorry on a uh, um, streetcar for ladies, 
those were his customers. You treat those people with respect. And he paid his men well. And the reason why he liked to do all this, especially with the whole working out thing, was most of the other gangs, they'd sit around, smoke cigarettes, drink, gamble, blah, blah, blah. And they were severely out of shape. And their reflexes weren't that quick and, and all. So he, he ran that company. So many people look at Al Capone like he was a, uh, a tyrant and all. If you look at that, he ran his organization almost like, you know, U.S. Steel did at that time. I mean, he ran his 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 operations. So if he would have if he would have taken all the ability that he had and you put uh, you, you removed him from crime and you put all the knowledge that he had and how to organize a business and put him into a legitimate business, he would have been phenomenal at it. Of course, crime was his was his business and he was very successful at it. Um, but getting back to the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, he didn't want anything to do with it. He left Al- or Jack McGurn knew that the heat would be on him. And again, there were so many rumors that, you know, Jack McGurn was one of the machine gunners. There was no way that any of those guys that went into that garage were known to those men. Because Again, I wasn't a fly on the wall. I wasn't in there. But they, they would have put up a fight and they said there was no fight at all. And if Jack McGurn would have walked in, they would have known him. And he he wouldn't have gotten near there. So I truly believe that he had nothing to do with it. Uh, Al Capone had nothing to do with it. They, they knew about it. And even Louise Rolfe said uh, to, to this Nancy Miller, who took care of her later in life, she said she goes, she believes that Jack knew of what was going on, but he had nothing to do with it. Because again, they knew the backlash and, and they were right. When, when, the, when the American public saw the newspapers the next day, they were not considered elegant rogues anymore. These, you know, and especially if you see the paper in the Chicago newspaper, it says Dr. Slain and Massacre. Well, this Schwimmer, you know, the, the, the guy with the hat on, <laughs> he was he was a mama's boy that, that didn't want to work. He hung out with gangsters. He threatened people to say, if somebody got a man, oh, I can have you killed anytime, blah, blah, blah. And he used to love to hang around. He was basically like a little mascot to them. They would, you know, they wouldn't fawn on him. They would almost kind of... Uh, look at him like what he was, you know, he wanted to be a little groupie. And again, he, him, like John made the mechanic just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. But he, he probably thought, again, I don't know what, what, again, nobody knows what those guys said in that, in there, you know, but it's funny. You look at, you look at other, at other books and all throughout the history and you, that you have this, this dialogue, what went on in there. It's like, you have no idea what went on. And people just add, the fiction to the fact to, to make a better story out of it, where you have to kind of dig, dig, you know, and that's why even on the book, I put down the life and legend because some of the stuff, you know, you don't know for sure. So that's why I threw the legend part on there. But I like that you that- brought up the formation and the, the, the Thompson submachine gun being brought into Chicago, because when you look at the untouchables, when you look at any of the time frame at that time, the submachine gun is, I mean, you can't see Chicago in the twenties without that. From what I understand from your, from the book, it wasn't obviously wasn't the only weapon used. Right. Shotguns were popular. Shotguns. Yes. Definitely shotguns. And of course, pistols when the guy could shoot a pistol Um, knives, a lot of people would sneak up on people, uh, straight edges, but the Thompson submachine gun was always uh, synonymous with 
with Chicago and, you know, the they called it the Chicago typewriter and just, just a point, Jeremy, you ever see any of the old movies where these guys are walking around with violin cases? Yeah. It is proven you could never get a Thompson submachine gun into a violin case, but again, it made for great, great copy made for great. Oh, come copy. on. Don't you, you can't take that away from us. We want to see, the, we want to oh, see yeah, the yeah. violin case. <laughs> I'm but, sorry. And, and also the Denver Broncos are a fantastic football team also, but <laughs> I had to get now, that in now you're, now you're undercutting my, my past. Man, I'll tell you, I'm sitting here. I'm, I'm, I, I enjoyed your book. I recommend this book completely. Uh, we were talking that, you know, this isn't just a football podcast. This is a family podcast. You are my friend and family. I recommend this book because he's a good writer. Like I said, you take it and you you make it to the point where you you explain things, the family relations, the how he got there. And that's something I, I, I appreciate about this book. But one thing I do enjoy about talking with you is your love of movies. Now, over on my corner here, and I'll have to get it while you're explaining things. I have the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. Hold on. Let me get it for you real quick. Okay. It had to be done. Oh. When I was growing up, uh, the real Ghostbusters came out on cartoons. Fantastic cartoon. Uh, they've got a new movie coming out next month. I am hoping that it's better than the previous one that came out about three years ago. I really like Ghostbusters 1 and 2. Do you have an opinion on this upcoming Ghostbusters movie? I'm going to break your heart but I've never seen Ghostbusters. All right. And that's it for today. That's it for today. (laughs) I'm really striking out with that. I try to give you a cheap shot on the Broncos and, uh, you know, and you know, the the machine gun doesn't fit in a violin case. And I'm just, that's strike three. Next thing you're going to come over here and you're going to kick my dog, huh? Thanks, Jeremy. It was great talking to you. It was great to talk to you. No, um, (laughs) tell me you like B movies. I love B movies. Give us, in your opinion, some B-movies, and when we say B-movies, we're talking about these are 1950s type movies that were made on a shoestring budget that are classics now. We Last last time we talked, you and I talked, we talked about The Blob, one of the worst acted B-movies, but it's classic. <laughs> Steve McQueen's in it. It's classic. Anything Steve McQueen's in, it's an instant classic. Give us some B movies, especially now it's close to Halloween that that we need to watch. Oh, gee. there's one out. I just I just found out about it uh, not too long ago, and it's great. It's called She Demons. Okay, and I'm going to write these down. And and when my wife says, "Why are you watching a movie called She Demons?" I say, "Because Mr. Rich told me to watch it." Is your wife going to come and find me and hit me over the head? <laughs> well, well, she, I know she, she does. <laughs> She goes, I that can't believe some... I married you, you know? Yeah, okay, okay. She Demons, what is that about? Is, is, oh, is it's, a... About a, it's about a Nazi war criminal that escapes to this island, and he takes these beautiful women, and he turns them into kind of monsters and keeps them in bamboo cages. And, uh, you know, gosh, that's pretty much it. That's pretty <laughs> much it. It's, she uh, I'm try- oh, Did you ever hear of Plan 9 from Outer Space? Okay, I have heard Plan 9 from Outer Space, and I have never seen it. Oh, Jeremy, if you want, 
you know, Plan 9 from Outer Space, I actually watched it and I was glued to it because, well, I have no class when it comes to these movies. You know, people, it's funny because people always look at me and they, you know, if I recommend them, I could say Gone with the Wind's a great movie. And they just look and say, no, it's not because you recommended it, you know, but, uh, <laughs> you know, but I'm kind of in my own, but it's funny because I have this, 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 it, you find out that there's people all over the world that are fanatical about these movies. And it's just great to reach out to these people. And some of them I actually work with and that, that you know, and, and it's what you kind of like look around like this, cause you're almost ashamed to say that you, you like these movies and you find out others like it and you wind up with this little cult, you know, cult of weird people like yourself, you know, not you, but I mean me, but oh, um, no, uh, I have a sign up on my wall here that says weird is a side effect of awesome. And I'm pretty awesome. So there you go. All right. Right. Back <laughs> at you, my friend. Now we're back on the same page. See, Rebounded from the, from the violins and the Broncos and, you know. and now Ghostbusters. Oh, now Ghostbusters. And we're, we're, but, oh, but what I heard about that movie is it's absolutely the worst movie ever made. There's some that are even worse, but if you, if you, if you really take monster of go, go, I would say it's probably pretty bad too. Uh, but we can get into that in a minute, but plan nine from outer space. If you watch this movie, just for the co- comic relief, the, the flying saucers are actual hubcaps from cars and you see the string on there, you know, and, and you could actually see the string and it's, you know, fluttering through the air like that. It's the, the craziest thing. And there's a scene where the lady is holding a, a ray gun and she's supposed to be shooting somebody and the thing won't work. And she's actually, goes, this thing isn't working. This is, it had nothing to do with the plot. They just kept it in there. Bella Lugosi, you know, the great Bella Lugosi, the Dracula, the, you know, the Dracula, everything like that, the, the great horror movie host or great horror movie star. He was in this movie and he started off in the movie. Well, he passed away during the, the filming of it. So why, why waste your money reshooting? They got a guy that was tall and skinny and he just had a cloak around his face and he just walked around where you could not see his face, but he was supposed to be Bella Lugosi. It's 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 the most amazing thing. I mean, people are knocking over these cardboard cardboard uh, um, gravestones. <clears throat> they don't even try to pick them up. The one actor, Tor Johnson, falls in a hole, actually falls in a hole. And he's trying to get out of the hole. And he's actually trying to get out of the hole. Nobody's helping him. They just kept on filming it. It was just, it, 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 it's, to me, <laughs> it was, it was, it was uh, unbelievable. Oh my goodness. Now I have Please to watch it. <laughs> I'll tell you, I watched a B movie last year. Uh, many of you are probably familiar with Little Shop of Horrors, the musical oh. Rich Brandis. Uh, I saw the original one. It has uh, Jack Nicholson in it. It's, I believe, his first appearance, and he wants to get a tooth removed. This movie is absolutely terrible. I enjoyed every minute of it. We drilled his teeth out, yeah. Oh, I enjoyed every minute of it, but I still don't know why he walked. Well, I'm not going to give away this story, but I still don't get the ending. Why would you do that? If you knew what that what that thing could do, why would you do what you did? Yeah, it, it, I think I think it became. I think it became him. I mean, it, it, it almost had like a, uh, like a, a hold on him where he just was kind of absorbed into it. And he just had to keep this, this thing going. And the only way he could was to do what he did. Well, if you haven't seen it, 
it's the black and white. I want to say it's from, I can't remember the exact year. Uh, 1960. 1960. Okay, that's what that's what I thought. It was around 58, 59, 60. Uh, if you haven't seen it, it's if you've got about an hour or so that you can give up and not want back, watch it. Um, How about the <laughs> hypnotic eye? Did you ever hear of the hypnotic eye? Yes, actually, I've heard of that, but uh, I've never seen it. Oh, you, if anything, if you just see the opening scene. Where you talk about special effects of that time where this young girl, she comes home, she's a beautiful woman, and she decides to wash her hair, but she's in a trance. She puts so shampoo in her hair, and this whole drama thing is going. And then she goes over to the stove, turns the stove on, puts her head in the stove, and her hair catches on fire. You know, she thought it was the thought it was the water she was put in a trance. And uh, it, it 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 all plays into this that all these beautiful women are winding up having all these weird things happen to them for a reason that I can't you know, explain without you watching it. I don't want to give anything away, but, but the hypnotic I, eyes classic. Uh, I think yeah. we've all been there though, thinking we're washing our hair and then ended up in the stove. I think we've all been there at times. And maybe a little too much tequila, you know, whatever, you well, know? I think that explains the fact that I have no <laughs> hair. Like, it burned, it burned my head right off the top of it. But you, um, you have a lot of interest and uh, I'm going to, We'll wrap this up because I've I've enjoyed every bit of this and I will have you back on again if you would like. Oh, I, my friend. I would love it. I would love it. I, I, I was looking so forward to this. Um I want I want you to uh plug your books, but also you have a a a really good podcast. Thank you. Would you like to plug that as well? Yeah, I I'll plug the podcast first. I back in February. I was interviewed by a man named Josh Murphy, who has a, a podcast called Raiders Fan Radio. And him and I, right before we got started, he said, you know, you wrote this book. This I wrote a book called the Encyclopedia, the Raiders Encyclopedia. It's the first 50 years of the team's history. And um, it's from 1960 through 2010. And he was just him and I just just wound up having this this great you know, bond in this. And I, I talked to him for 40 minutes and I felt like I knew him for 40 years, kind of like I do with you. You know I mean? I just feel like I've known you for years. And then right before we went on to the air, he told me, he goes, did you ever think about doing a podcast? Cause I told him I was interested in doing a podcast on Hollywood history and things like that with B movies and all. And he said, did you ever think about doing a podcast on Raiders history? Well, I almost fell out of my chair. So I was almost I, I was on such a rush with endorphins, like like I get when I work out or run. You know, I, I just had this, this, this surge of endorphins, where it, it was just an amazing opportunity. But then I was intimidated at first, thinking, "Geez, I don't know anything about this stuff." Well, I learned it and all, and you know, got the microphone, did everything I'm supposed to do. And in July, I started uh, recording these. Uh, it's called Silver and Black Silver and Black Flashback, and uh, he gives me. I'm on his. I'm on his network. And I just have a great time. The shows last about 15 to 20 minutes. And I give little tidbits on, on the Raiders. I, I cover a lot of their, their crazy wild times and a lot of their, you know, the, 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 good, the, the good stories also. It's not all just, you know, arrests and drugs and everything like that that's associated with it and fights that's associated <laughs> with that team. But, um, and by the way, the Rob Lyle fumble never happened. But anyways, uh, <laughs> man, I am just... I am just terrible. Oh my sure gosh. You know, it's it's hurting. It's hurting sitting over here. He's in Ohio. I'm here in Tennessee. And it's kind of like you could just feel you could just feel the daggers. 
And you forgot to tell everybody that, you know, I, I sent you a nice, nice message before the Denver game. Yes, he did. He, <laughs> he, he actually did. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I, oh gosh, let's see if I can pull it back up here and where is it? Um, yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. It was, it was a really nice message. Um, uh, I enjoy your podcast. Um, and, Thank you. and they can, any podcaster, uh, and, and if I can figure out how to do it, I will put a link to it on the show notes as well. Oh, thank you. It's, it's on once a week. And, um, like I said, it, it's, it's just a lot of fun to, you know, to, to cover and to talk about, about this. And, uh, I've gotten a lot of positive feedback from, from, uh, this is Josh Murphy who goes by Murph, uh, Murph's fan cave on there. And, uh, actually he's down in, he's down in Nashville also. I like his, I like his podcast too. It's pretty neat. Um, you. you you have written the Raiders Encyclopedia. You have written the book about uh, Machine Gun Jack McGurn, a Chicago assassin. Again, I'll put that in the show notes. You've also written something about the uh, Cleveland Browns, right? Right. I wrote a book on the Cleveland Browns when the Browns left town. I'm sorry, when the Browns were coming back in 1999, there was a big, you know, big surge of interest in the Browns again. And I thought, well, you know what? I've always wanted to write a book. And, uh, you know, I talked it over with my wife, my family, and they said, you know, go for it. So I went for it. And uh, one of the companies bid on my query. I didn't have anything written yet. And I took a shot at it. And then all of a sudden they accepted it. You know, a company wanted it. And, you know, it's intimidating at first, whether you're doing podcasting or, or writing or whatever. The first thing is always intimidating. And I was like, OK, now I got to write this book, you know. And uh, so I was able to, to, to get it done pretty quick. That book came out in 1999, and then it was followed by Chicago Assassin, and then the snowball effect. I had the Raiders come out, the Raiders Encyclopedia, and I stuck with the encyclopedic theme for a while. I did a book on the Los Angeles Lakers, their first 50 years, the USC Trojans, their first uh, football of the football team, their first 125 years, and then the Dodgers, their first 50 years in, uh, I'm sorry, 60 years in Los Angeles. Now. Very impressive. Again, I will put all this stuff on the on the show notes. But I do need you as we close today. You did this when we when we talked the last time. I need you to all right to get into character. You ready? Okay, I'm in character. You, you're you're in character. You never get out of character, do you? <laughs> Don't really. <laughs> <laughs> you you're you're Al Davis. You just won a Super Bowl. Pete Rosell hands you Tiffany. He also took you to court. You took him to court. You well, you're, got talking about, you're talking about the trophy, not not some stripper, right? Uh, well, that that's for Urban Meyer to talk about. <laughs> Tiffany, Tiffany, I went there too. Um, Tiffany with an eye. <laughs> Tiffany with an eye. Uh, when I say Tiffany. Uh, that's the nickname of the Super Bowl trophy. Right. I, I know. I just had to throw that a little line. No, I, I have to make sure I, I say that. Uh, it's called the Vince Lombardi trophy. It's Tiffany, whatever. <laughs> and he looks out and he says three words. I need you to channel that and close this out today. Okay. Before, before he says the three words, he says, when you have great coaches and you get great players, and then you tell them to do one thing and you hear everybody say, what is that? And he just looks out and smiles and says, just win, baby. 
That's what I needed you to finish this off with. Thank you very much, Mr. Rich. You are uh, a good friend. I appreciate you coming on. I enjoyed every bit of this. Now, I have this paperwork right here in my office with she demons on the top to watch. I probably shouldn't leave it lying around. <laughs> yeah. I hate to have oh. to explain that. There's one more thing, Jeremy. If, yeah. if you really want, if you really want to watch some great drive-in movies, yeah. my all-time favorite actress of all time is Claudia Jennings. She is at Truck Stop Women, Gator Bait, Roller, uh, uh, Unholy Rollers, just absolutely amazing. Uh, Texas, uh, Great Texas Dynamite Chase. Oh, it's, just look up Claudia Jennings, and her movies are just, you know. Again, don't be afraid if I give you any advice with movies. Okay. Uh, no, I see the look uh, of terror in your eyes. Okay, so you 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 say this, and I and I again, I I have another story for you. Um, I, I'm a I'm a preacher by trade, uh, but before I ever became a preacher, I was a nerd, and I'm the first to admit I'm a giant nerd. My wife said the only reason that she had anything to do with me is because football was a love of mine. Uh, I had Spider-Man posters on the wall here in my office. I have Batman stuff. Okay. It's just what it is. So she went with a friend of mine. We went to Walker Stalker Con in Nashville. It is, uh, you know, it was based on uh, the walking dead, but they had actors and actresses over on the side. And I went and I cannot think of her name. I don't know why I'm drawing a blank right now. But the actress that played the lead role in the original Night of Living Dead. Oh. I cannot think of her name. I'm, they're coming to get you. Is she the lady that screamed a lot? The, the, the lady whose brother comes and kills her at the end? Yes. Okay. You know who I'm talking about. Yes. I'm drawing a blank. But when you're talking about a B, B movie, that movie right there actually was a lot better looking back on it as as I got older, it was it was better made uh, with what they had to work with, and it was uh, the ending still bothers me today, yes. and that's the way it was supposed to do. But that movie, if you've not seen the original, not 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 the remake with Candyman, the old black the old, and white one, oh. the old black and white one. Uh, if you've not seen that, it is George Romero, and I think he didn't even get credit for that. I think they took that from him because um, I think his title was Night of the Flesh Eaters. And they changed it to Night of the Living Dead and took the credit away from George Romero for that. But it started the zombie stuff. It also is the, the forefather of The Walking Dead. If you've not seen that movie, that movie is a must for October 31st. Oh, definitely, definitely. That that's that. I would put that one number one. I would put that one absolutely number one. Well, that movie is fantastic. And again, when I first watched it, I was like, you know, this isn't that good. Yeah, it's really good. Oh yeah, it's it's it's. I remember I watched that. Um, it was funny. They were showing it. Um, we went. My, my girlfriend and I went to go see a movie at that time. Not, not you know, a girlfriend before I got married because my wife wouldn't really want me to have a girlfriend now. No, but, I would frown on that. Yeah, my yeah, she she have a tendency. She's a great lady, but she have a major tendency to frown on that. But when I was in high school, they were reshowing that around Halloween. Now, like everybody in school, you have these these beat up old cars, you know. 
And we went to go see that movie in a movie theater and it's dark and everything and the black and white. And the impact of that movie was, you know, you were trying to be cool. You're 17, trying to be cool with your girlfriend, you know, blah, blah. But you're walking to your car and you can't help but turn around and keep looking behind. Oh, I think I see somebody behind. And then you just hope that this junker that you have starts. <laughs> oh, no. Way off the subject again. I'll have to stop here in just a second. My mother will kill me for telling this story. Uh, but she lived in a trailer. Uh, before her and my dad got married a uh, little, little trailer off on a dirt road in dixon county and they went out and watched the legend of boggy creek oh and bigfoot was everywhere that night she told me that story i laughed i have not seen that movie i'm a huge bigfoot fan but i have not seen the legend of boggy creek <laughs> uh, i don't know if i want to because i'm afraid that it's going to be a letdown yeah. Now there, it, it's it. There's there's just so many of these movies. Like I said, the, the Drive-In Queen, Claudia Jennings from the '70s. She she was to me. She she had she had great. If if you see her eyes, she had she p- could play incredibly intense roles. And uh, if you ever see one of her movies, The Great Texas Dynamite Chase, some of the scenes are a little risque, you know. But uh, especially with you being a preacher and everything, I don't want to promote that with you, but. Uh, some of them are risky, but I mean, she was just an, I, I thought she was just an incredible, uh, just B movie queen. I mean, just, just incredible. And, uh, some of the movies that she did were, you know, really, you know, sucked, Judith, sucked in. Judith O'Day. Uh, was that Barbara. her name? Judith O'Day. And I met her, uh, there at Walker Stalker Con. I could have had a picture with her, but. Uh, they charge like fifty dollars for that, and I thought, <laughs> yeah, no. I remember no, that with her brother. Her brother had the driving gloves on and drove that '67 GTO. <laughs> he did. Right? They're coming to get you, Barbara. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and the little girl in the basement with the father. You know? No, no, no. Uh, yeah, any anything with kids in it is scary. As uh, I have three kids, children of the corn. Oh, children of the corn. Oh. Oh, no. Well, Mr. Rich, thank you for coming on today. Oh, thank you so much, Jeremy, for having me. It was a, it was a, I had a great time. I was looking so forward to this with you. Let's have you back on when we, uh, when we can talk about, you know, either the Broncos or the Titans in the Super Bowl and the Raiders staying home. Okay. Can I leave you with one more thing? Love your Raider Nation. Just win, baby. <laughs> I had to get that in. <laughs> Just got to get it in. Thank you all for listening. I'm never going to be on your show again, am I? (laughs) It's iffy right now. It's iffy. (laughs) This podcast is sponsored by Play Classic Sports Simulation Board Games. Spelled with two A's. P-L-A-A-Y. Realistic board game recreations of professional football, hockey, baseball, NASCAR, golf, and more. They cover nine sports in all, with a tenth basketball coming in 2022 you can relive great sessions of the past create what if matchups from different eras and much more it's fun so if you're into sports history you should check them out that's play with two a's p-l-a-a-y classic.com and don't forget to use the code s-h-n at checkout and get 10 percent off your first order Hey, 
Are you ready for some football? Some fantasy football? How about some daily fantasy football? Silly questions, right? Of course you are. You're ready to talk some smack and win some cash every Sunday, and Thursday, and Monday, and whenever there's football games. The Sports History Network invites you to play your daily fantasy football this season at thrivefantasy.com. Thrive Fantasy offers hundreds of thousands, millions in cash every day on NBA, MLB, PGA, golf, cricket, esports, and of course, NFL football. And just to get the 2021 NFL season started right, Thrive Fantasy is holding its $100,000 guaranteed contest with a $20,000 first prize. Sign up with Thrive Fantasy today to get a 100% match bonus on your first deposit for up to $100 in free daily fantasy football play. Visit sportshistorynetwork.com slash thrive. That's T-H-R-I-V-E. Or enter promo code SHN when depositing at the cashier. Join Thrive Fantasy today, earn cash prizes, and support great shows like this at the Sports History Network. Now that's a win-win-win situation for you to kick off your own NFL season. At the Sports History Network, we're all about sports yesteryear, and so we're so pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings your sports history to life anywhere. The Row One gallery includes over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, advertisements, and more in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. And any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. And in Row One Shop, check out the thousands more of unique items with a retro and historical designs dating back to 1876 including t-shirts, long sleeve shirts, phone cases, mugs, blankets, pillows, towels and even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com R-O-W number one for access to the full Row 1 catalog and for gallery prints and gift items plus get a 15% discount off all prints on the Row 1 Pictorum Gallery with coupon code SHN15 Follow the link on the show notes Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time, as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.